Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, it's Hertel's show. Thank you so much for joining us, for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. As we do what we always try to do here, turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the things that really matter, try to understand them a little bit better so that we can properly discern the times we live in. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for being here. Michael Siegel, Dr. Michael Siegel to some of us, our very good friend, the most appeared guest on this program for a reason. He's really smart. He really knows things. And he'll be our guest today here in a little bit. Going to talk some RFK Jr. and the anti-vax stuff and the Looney Tunes stuff that comes out of him. Because Michael, among other things, has also did a lot of the writing on our COVID coverage at Ordinary-Times.com. Not only him, his wife's also an mRNA researcher. So he knows a lot about this stuff. Also going to use his uh, day job as an astronomer, astrophysicist, and the flyer of a spacecraft. No, seriously, that's his side hustle. He flies a spacecraft uh, to talk some questions that some folks had about some um, things going on in space that you may want to know about. We always enjoy talking to Dr. Michael Siegel. He'll be our guest today. We'll end on a good note about the depth of CAPTCHAs, you know, those little puzzle things you got to do to prove you're human. And some of us, like me, usually fail once or twice before we get it figured out. We'll talk about that at the end of the program. But I want to start with this. Um, Our little tagline there, turning down the noise. Uh, understanding the news, not just being consumers of it. News narratives are very powerful things. I want to talk about a narrative that's been going on for 30 years now, if not a shade longer, that ended. But it was a powerful pop culture narrative. It was a powerful political narrative. It crossed a lot of streams, and it gets to the heart of what we try to do here on this program. Uh, Sinead O'Connor died, the singer. Um, A lot of people unjustly, in my opinion, called her a one-hit wonder because of her singing of Nothing Compares to You. For those of you too young to remember, or maybe you just haven't Googled this yet, Sinead O'Connor's career basically came to a screeching halt when in 1992, and I'm old enough to remember when this happened, she went on stage of Saturday Night Live and did a performance where she ripped a picture of the Pope in protest. Now, this was Pope John Paul II, who was beloved by most people in the world, so this was a shocking moment. Since then, she's had a very difficult life. By her own admission, in her own memoirs, and in her own social media, she has a lot of issues as a person. In the last few years, uh, one of her children died by suicide. She's had multiple health issues. She's talked about her own mental health issues. And now she has passed away. 
we at the moment we're recording this don't have the official cause of death. I'm not going to speculate on it. Things are out there somewhat irrelevant to this conversation because we know that this was somebody who was troubled. But that trouble didn't come out of nowhere. And this is where we get to media narratives. I want to read something from the site, Welcome to Hell World. That's the uh, newsletter from Luke O'Neill. It's always an interesting read. He has outsourced this particular piece to Leela Brilson. I've read this twice. I'm going to read it probably a third time through. I'm just going to read part of it. Please read the whole thing. We're going to link to it. I actually posted this also at Ordinary Times, and I titled it, This is not the obituary the world wants for Sinead O'Connor. This is much deeper and much more important. But I just want to take a snippet of it because the media narratives that went around that incident in 1992 and how they carried over, we now have hindsight on them. This is what Leela wrote, and this is about halfway through the piece. So already she, Sinead O'Connor, was a powder keg, a scion of controversy, having already boycotted the Grammys because they are a capitalist B-word. When she walked onto the silent SNL stage in 1992 at the height of her fame, she asked that the applause sign be turned off for dramatic effect. What she did, what she did for the abuse she suffered at the convents, and we're talking about the ripping of the Pope's picture here, for the abuse she suffered at the convents, for the way that Catholicism tore her country apart, it wasn't just a scandal. She became an untouchable pariah, dooming her career and effectively making her, to the public at large, a one-hit wonder. The world hit back hard. Madonna, who's like a virgin, pales next to Sinead's I want your hands on me, mocked her. Joe Pesci, when he hosted SNL the next week, suggested he did hit her, and the crowd cheered. Disgruntled Catholics rented a steamroller outside of Rockefeller Center to crush her albums for the cameras. A few weeks later, after a nonstop blitz of bad press, 26-year-old was so loudly booed by the entirety of Madison Square Garden, she gave up trying to perform and just scream-shouted the lyrics to Bob Marley's War in the Mic and walked off. She was never given a platform that large again. Sinead O'Connor was born to a woman who abused her, grew up in a country that abused women, and then suffered abuse that only a woman could endure. She was not well, having attempted suicide for the first time in 1999, and when her own young son took his life in 2021, she promised to follow. She had fibromyalgia. She had bipolar disorder. She changed her name several times. Her politics were messy and often problematic, and she'd say things and retract things. She sank into her newly found Muslim faith, and made regrettable comments about non-Muslims, which she also retracted. In a reactionary move, she even slut-shamed Miley Cyrus in a wrecking ball. So for the last decade, she was, quote, a woman in crisis, while simultaneously being vindicated for her, quote, original sin, as more and more clergy sex scandals piled up. But she was never, ever given an apology. She was never honored or celebrated. She was no longer filled with fury, but a sadness and despair. This is a quote. It is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society, she commented on a story about herself in the New York Times in 2021. Go read all of this piece. I'm editing some of it. i am skipped a few pieces for coherence for the audio audience. Read the entire piece. It's very searing. It's very challenging. It probably upset a lot of folks, but you should read it anyway. Why am I bringing this up on a culture and politics podcast? Because think about the history involved in what happened here. This wasn't just a pop culture moment where everybody reacted. Oh, she tore the Pope up. Look, I grew up Baptist. We didn't like the Pope anyway. And everybody was shocked and outraged at this. That's how deep this stuff went. We didn't even have cable and found out about it. 
Moments like that, that narrative moment followed her for the rest of her life. And it doesn't excuse all her behavior and it doesn't excuse all the things that happened to her, but there's a lot of context to it. She was protesting an institution in the Catholic Church that we now know, and a lot of folks knew then and just didn't say or couldn't say or wouldn't say, had a lot of abuse issues, had a lot of power structure issues of bad folks getting inside that power structure and using it for ill and for some really horrid things. We have that perspective 30 years after she tore that picture. We have a perspective of what things do and fame does and what before <laughs> this was a viral moment before we knew what viral moments were and what that can do to not only people, but the culture around it. Let's take a look at that moment in context. You don't think growing up in an Ireland in the time she did, that doesn't have context. Being a woman who suffered abuse doesn't have context. Being a performance artist that was trying to do some really radical stuff that didn't have context. But we missed all that because everybody jumped on that one viral moment. This was one of those moments where folks really should have turned down the noise a little bit. Not that she was right about everything before, since, or during that moment. But we probably could have listened and maybe we would have learned a little bit more than what we did. Time proved her right about the Catholic Church abuse, and everybody mocked and booed. And this woman's life, by her own hand partially, and also partially by the way society and wider culture reacted to the choices she made and did, helped her destroy it. This is a teachable moment. If you go back to 1992, before we really had the internet in this present form, we had this viral moment. Think about now how everybody then reacted to that and how maybe it'd be different now with more context or historical opinions. And maybe what we should do is when these really hot viral moments hit now that really sear through. And this is one of the biggest media moments you could, if you did a listing of media moments in the TV age, that would be way, way up on the list. Maybe we should take more approach of, okay, in 30 years, how's this going to look? In three years, how's this going to look? In three months, how's this going to look? Three days from now, in some of these cases, how would this look? We joke about the 24-hour rule. We couldn't have known everything that we know now in 1992 when Sinead O'Connor, purposefully trying to be shocking, granted, did that moment and the fallout thereof. But there should be a lesson here on how we, in the media, and how we as consumers of the media can set a track forward that goes for a long, long time before it ever gets corrected, if it ever gets corrected. I feel bad for Sinead O'Connor and her family. We will pray for them. It's a sad story how it ended. But there's a lot of lessons in here on how we consume the media because it was the consumers of the media that grabbed that ball and ran with it, not just Sinead O'Connor. Important lessons that we'll try to take to heart as we continue to try cover culture and politics here on Herb Tell. Take a minute, take a beat, think of the wider things. More importantly, in every viral moment, remember we're dealing with people and dig into the people and why people do things, even when you don't dis even if you don't agree with them, even if you vehemently disagree with them, maybe especially when you vehemently disagree with them. Dig into why they're doing that and what their backgrounds is, because this world and this life is about the people, not the viral moment, not the buzzwords, 
not the clicks. And if we understand the people better, we'll understand our times better, and we'll be better people ourselves. More hardtail right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, he's been on this show more than anyone, so now that we're doing shows again, let's get him back on and keep that string going. Dr. Michael Siegel, he is a professor up at Penn State, who WVU has to play at Penn State this year. I am not looking forward to that. How are you, my friend? I'm good. How are you? Uh, we're hanging in there. Uh, a lot of things to cover. We actually got some science questions we got from the peanut gallery. We're going to run by you here in a little bit so we can get into your forte uh, we're going to start with something else, but first of all, your background there, is that the second star to the right from Star Trek, or is that a particular nebula we should know about, or what are we dealing with here? This is another one of the JS, JWST images of a star-forming region, so one of the ways we're looking and seeing how uh, how stars form, that we can finally pierce the veil of dust and uh, see the very beginnings of solar systems. Cool. Um, for those of you that aren't on the YouTube, uh, you can go on YouTube, see the background he is using. Uh, let's do this because during COVID, because you are a bona fide certified scientist of some renown, uh, we talked to you a lot during COVID about the COVID stuff and especially the vaccine stuff. And it's not just because of you. Your spouse also works in this field. You know a lot of stuff about this. You became the explainer on a lot of the technical scientific terms. The reason I'm walking through this real slow is because with RFK Jr. running for president, his long, well-documented history of not just the bat crazy stuff he says, not just the anti-Semitic stuff, which is now on video, and he says he never said, even though it's on video, it's on video. He really made his bones in his public persona of the last, let's say, 20, 25 years with the anti-vax movement. This is not in a vacuum. This happened in a sequence. He became prominent during COVID because he was already doing this stuff. A lot of the COVID stuff came from him. You actually wrote about this. There's a very small cabal of people that produce most of the anti-vax stuff. It's about five or six people. He's one of the most prominent ones. And now he's running for president and it's all coming up again. And they hide it under stuff like anti-establishment. And they hide it under stuff like we're just asking questions. He's not just asking questions. We've got 30 years of book on this guy doing this stuff. Yeah, and the, there's the one of the big debates going on right now is, well, why won't people debate RFK? Why won't Peter Hotez or somebody like that go on Joe Rogan's show and debate him? And it's because we've been watching him for 20 years, and he has a tendency to do what uh, in debating terms is called a gish gallop, where you just throw out a bunch of stuff, and it would you know, you can throw out in 10 seconds what it takes five minutes to debunk. Like one of the, for example, one of the things he's harping on right now is that these vaccines have never been uh, control studied against saline placebos. You know, we haven't given half the kids a vaccine, half the kids placebos to see how well they work. And it's a half lie. You know, you take polio. Polio was, was originally tested in one of the largest placebo trials in history, 600,000 children. And Jonas Salk actually opposed it. He said, this is unethical to give 
children of placebo when we have a vaccine that might work. And we should just compare the rates to historical rates. But they did it anyway. But as time has gone on, we have tweaked the polio vaccine. We have reduced the viral load. We have changed what the other ingredients in it. Other vaccines have gone through changes. We removed thimerosal at RFK's insistence 20 years ago. And so what he's saying is each time we make a tweak, we should do another placebo test against saline, which is insane. Uh, no ethical person would deliberately expose children to polio, measles, mumps, rubella, if you have a working vaccine. So what we do when we tweak a vaccine is we give half the children the new one and half the children the old one and then compare the results because we know the old one works. Uh, Dr. David Gorski, who runs the uh, Respectful Insolence blog, he works on cancer and he said, imagine if you had something that cured cancer 75% of the time and you make some improvement, now you're going to cure cancer 80% of the time. Would you give cancer patients a placebo that doesn't work at all? Or would you give them the old medicine and compare how the new medicine works? And, you know, that's why we do that. We compare vaccines to the old vaccines to see if we have more or fewer side effects, to see if they're more or less effective. We don't deliberately expose children to potentially deadly diseases. And the polio, that polio vaccine trial is a perfect example. They had 600,000 children in them. 16 children died, all of them in the placebo group. 36 children end up with some form of paralysis, all but two in the placebo group. What RFK is saying is we should do that every time we make some tweak to the to the polio vaccine, deliberately expose children to polio with a placebo vaccine. And that's just nonsense. And it took me three or four minutes to debunk what he says in 20 seconds. And so that's why people who are familiar with this guy and familiar with his movement don't want to engage in those kinds of debates because he's not a good faith actor. He throws out these points. Even when they are debunked, he continues to throw them out. He never goes back and says, well, I was wrong about this and removes that from the discussion. You know, people who are genuinely asking questions are interested when you answer the question. You know, they'll change their mind or they'll at least say, OK, you know, I'm not quite convinced, but at least I understand it better now. Whereas someone like RFK, who is a dishonest actor, is not really asking questions. He's just throwing out his talking points and never will update his priors. Yeah, this goes back to something you talked about before, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. There's no version of good science, good scientific method, good research. There's no version of good, solid science that does not involve saying we're wrong or we need to adjust this or we need to take a different path here. Is there? And that's just like this basic fundamental principle that really hurt the discourse during COVID, especially because you had a lot of public officials with doctors in front of their names, basically refusing to ever modify anything for any reason at all. And it's not just them, you know, everybody does this, but that's a core tenet to science is being able to say, yeah, we were wrong. The earth's not flat in the Renaissance or yeah, we were wrong. You know, yeah, what, pick whatever you want. You have to be able to admit you're wrong to have good science. Yeah. And that's a, 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 you know, when you're talking about COVID things like, you know, we thought that the vaccines would give long-term immunity. Um, they do give long-term resistance, but they don't give the sterilizing immunity, the 100% immunity that we'd hoped for. And that's something we were wrong about. They don't prevent transmission. They do cut it dramatically. You know, we seem to have this dichotomy of people say don't, they don't affect transmission at all. And people say they prevent at 100%. It's somewhere in the middle. They cut it back down significantly. But there was a period of time where even just admitting that they weren't that, you know, 100% effective in preventing transmission was something that could not be said. 
And so the scientists have been right more often than they've been wrong, but I think that when you're right, it gives you more credibility when you have that track record of admitting, okay, well, this is something we got wrong. And this is why we've changed our advice on this. And this is where we, why we've changed what we think about this. And I think one of the things I have seen over and over again is that if you explain that to the public, even if they don't understand the fine details, they'll at least go along with it of, okay, I see why we've you know, changed the advice. I see why we've changed what we're saying now. And uh, that's, that makes sense to me. Because there is a line, and this is where science starts to meet, you know, the popular opinion, and that's always a big problem. There is honest questioning to be had, especially with experimental new vaccines, because nobody had ever done them before, the scientists or anybody else. There is honest questioning. And it's, the thing about what well, we're just asking questions is such a deflect. Look, the polio vaccine is one of the great achievements of mankind in human history. But they screwed up. They actually put the live virus in and killed thousands of people. And Eisenhower had to go, one of the first TV things ever present, they had to go on TV and calm everybody down like they made a mistake. They accidentally put the live virus in because they'd never done it before. They didn't know how to do it. Thankfully, that's not happening again. But where's that line at of honest questioning without getting into the conspiratorial stuff? Because people just, there's not a hard and fast line, but there's got to be some rules and guardrails, right? Because it's fair to ask questions of anything new especially scientific, the very cutting edge of science, especially like these mRNA vaccines, these things that had never existed three months prior to us figuring them out. We have to be able to honestly question that without going down that road of conspiracy theory, right? So how do we do that? I think that the, the you have to separate the good actors from the bad actors. The good actors are the ones when they ask questions, listen to the answers. As I said, you know, they don't necessarily say, all right, I'm, I'm done asking questions, but they at least acknowledge you have answered this question, they acknowledge the new information, they build further questions or discussion based on those answers to those questions. So you know, mRNA vaccines, you know, they, you know, they, I, I would push back a little bit on the idea that these were experimental. They'd been working on this for years. There was a DNA vaccine that was used, I think, in horses before. So this was technology that had not been used on the scale before, but it was technology we've been working on for a while. And I think that addressing it more forthrightly saying, look, yes, we have not used these in humans before, but this is technology that has been in the building for 20 years. This is something that we have been working towards. This is something that we have a very great detailed knowledge of and something we are continuing to monitor as they are deployed to make sure they're working the way we think they are. And when you look at it that way, you know, they did that, that, that is the way it worked out, that we did a phase two and phase three trials, they worked out, we did do a mass deployment, we continue to monitor the effectiveness and safety of the vaccines, and they have shown both very good effectiveness and very good safety records. And uh, I think that addressing this more forthrightly rather than shutting down the discussion is, uh, is, is where you come from on this. Yeah, I, 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 I don't want to harp on the anti-vaccine stuff because I think now people, you either either get it or you don't. 
I really think we're kind of the, to that point with the with the discourse of it. But it is important to push back on this stuff because this stuff really matters. There's the case in American Samoa. There's the polio thing from generations before we talk about. This really does matter and it really does affect people's lives. And yes, there's always going to be those people that have some side effects to any vaccine for any reason. But there's also this vast amount of people that need protection from these diseases. This is really important stuff that I'm afraid is getting lost in the culture war stuff and the media narrative stuff. And we're kind of missing the point of science is not just discovering stuff. Science, especially health science, really has practical application to people. You Look, a lot of us lost people we know and love during COVID. If we could have got the vaccines ahead of time, how many of those, that sort of thing. This stuff really matters. And I don't want to lose it in the discourse. And I feel like we did. Yeah. And especially when you're talking about vaccines, first of all, the COVID vaccine skepticism has sort of backflowed into skepticism about regular vaccines. And you talked about Samoa. They, uh, uh, What happened was a couple of nurses messed up, put the wrong stuff in with a vaccine, and a couple of children died. And the anti-vaxxers went around and said the vaccines are killing children. And so they stopped vaccinating people. And there was a measles outbreak and 30 children died. And that's why that stuff matters, that you have to be able to have these discussions. I mean, like you talked about with Eisenhower, when they messed up the polio vaccine, had to calm people down and say, the vaccine is safe. You know, we need, we, you know, there was a horrible mistake, but we need to move forward and so forth. And we are going to have more mRNA vaccines in our future. These have potentials for addressing malaria, which kills enormous numbers of people a year. They have potential for, for applications to cancer. They have uh, potential applications to future diseases. You know, COVID-19 is not going to be the last pandemic we're going to have. And we may have uh, future deadly outbreaks of more uh, uh, deadly flu and things like that. We're going to need to be able to have these discussions and about our future public health interventions. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. This brings us back to where we started with RFK Jr. And you just said it. Um, these people are conspiracy theorists. It's not a conspiracy. They were prepared and knew exactly where the weak links in the public health narrative was to bring what they had already been talking about with the anti-vaccine wackadooism and insert it into the breaking news and the current issue of the COVID stuff. And that's where this comes full circle is people like RFK Jr. We had book on him. We knew what they were all about but they managed to greatly expand their influence because of what was going on in the world. And people didn't take the time to go back and read what these folks were all about prior. They just slammed what was happening into it. That's a practical kind of science, isn't it? People being able to disseminate information to kind of test it, to read people. So like we talk about science as this thing in the lab and finding the stars and the solar stuff. There's a practical science to how you consume news media. And I think RFK in our politics, this is a good example of it. Is that a fair way to put it? Um, I think that would be a fair way of, pull, of of putting it, that we have a tendency to sort of put science issues into a, a see them through a partisan lens. And especially with, um, and that's why the, the RFK for president thing is kind of disturbing, because I'm afraid that, you know, you're going to have one party or the other kind of embrace his point of view. And, you know, don't lose track of, of what's going on here. I mean, RFK's uh, foundation on vaccines quadrupled their income during the pandemic. And uh, his salary went up quite a bit. There was a, I think a Washington Post article about this a few a few weeks ago. So don't lose track of how these guys are using this to gain influence and power uh, because of the 
because we had a major disruptive event. I mean, COVID-19 was a national and global trauma and people start looking for answers. And here are these people who come in who seem to have the answers, even though they are, you know, kind of out there and have a long history of deception. Yeah, you just mentioned the word. I think it's a fair word to use. Science has limitations. We've talked about this on this program with you a lot. Science doesn't explain trauma super well. It can tell you like the rippling edges of what the trauma does, but it doesn't really explain philosophical and emotional trauma to people. And that's a lot of what we're dealing with here. And then people look for science to an answer for that. And that's not really what science is designed to do, is it? Uh, no, and we can we can look at some of the medical aspects of trauma, some of the psychological aspects of a trauma. But when you're talking about a global event like this, this is unprecedented and we're, on a, we're in uncharted waters in terms of how this affects people's lives, how it affects people's politics, how it affects pe how people just look at the world in general. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel. Okay, let's get to his day job. He is a scientist and astronomer. See, I'm not going to say astrologist and tease you again because I always mess up and do that, but an astronomer, astrophysicist. You you wrote in Ordinary Times back during the 4th of July holiday, and I want to go back to it for a second. Nanograv, which sounds like just an awesome James Bond villain organization or something, but we have, I, I love the tagline on this, tsunamis in space. That just sounds cool. That sounds like an anime type deal. But talk about these gravitational waves, nanograv, what they found, who they are, because it is an acronym. There's another great acronym of LIGO in here. You can play with that one too. This is just really, really cool stuff. It sounds like sci-fi, but it's happening right now, and we're actually learning a whole lot from it. Yeah, so one of the... One of the things we talk about in astronomy is messengers. We don't get out to go out and touch and weigh and measure the things we study. We have to rely on the information they send to us with what we call messengers. And the primary messenger is light because it moves throughout the universe. It moves at literally the speed of light. But there's another messenger that over the last decade we've developed the ability to detect, and that's gravitational waves, little literal ripples in the fabric of space-time uh, produced by moving objects. And LIGO, the Laser Interferometry Gravitational Observatory, what they do is they shine lasers down hallways and they look for little interference patterns and they can detect uh, massive black holes crashing into each other millions of light years away. What Nanograv does is they detect gravitational waves that are light years in size, that are produced by ginormous black holes that are millions or billions of times the mass of the sun, possibly maybe even gravitational waves from the creation of the universe itself we could detect. And it's pretty elegant. What they do is they look at all these pulsars, which are the dead husks of, of uh, massive stars that spin on their axis very fast and give off regular flashes of light that are very precisely timed. And they look for itty bitty tiny one in a quadrillion changes in those timing that indicates that uh, a gravitational wave passed through the universe that the distance between us and the pulsar changed very slightly. And by looking at uh, 68 of these, uh, they were able to detect the first massive gravitational wave that's light years in size. And so it's a huge breakthrough. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out 
her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. One of the things you pointed out was um, it's almost like when I talk to medical people, like, is there more cancer? Or are we just finding it more and understanding it better? <laughs> Y'all with this, this nanograph stuff, it really is a way of, no, we're just leaps and bounds, new ways of discovering this, the new instrumentation, the way to process the computing power involved in this is something that doesn't get talked about a lot of ability to compute all this data way, way faster than it used to be. This was multiple uh, stations and telescopes in different places. Of course, the new technology where they can all communicate in real time all the time now. This stuff's all kind of coming to a head at the just the right time, and it's really exploding how we explore the galaxy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we are in kind of a golden age with that sort of thing. And, um, you know, just the the power of the instrumentation we have, the sensitivity of it. Um, one of the key telescopes was uh, the, in, in your neck of the woods in West Virginia for the Green Bank uh, Observatory. And, um, yeah, but being able to connect telescopes around the globe, being able to measure these things very precisely, being able to process the amount of data you know, I would have thrown my hands up at 20 years ago, but now with the computing power that is available to us, we're able to process this and, and discover these things. So it's it's uh, it's quite impressive, the stuff that we're able to do now. All right. We had a couple questions from the peanut gallery that they wanted to ask the uh, legitimate scientist. Uh, so Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Uh, solar maximum has been brought up. Now, People are cutting corners here and adding this to the current heat wave. A lot of folks are saying that's not what necessarily this is. The sun runs on cycles and we don't fully understand them, but we're starting to understand the cycles and we're trying to figure out how those cycles work. But for folks to just watch that big ball go across the sky, the sun's this living, breathing thing that has cycles and solar maximums a part of that. Uh, yeah, we have an 11 year cycle in the sun where it goes from being relatively placid for something that's 5,800 degrees to very active where you have lots of flares, lots of coronal mass ejections uh, and so forth. And what happens is the sun has a magnetic field 
And over 11 years, it gets, gets twisted up inside the sun and starts to poke through the surface. And that's what creates sunspots and prominences. And when those magnetic field lines break, that's what creates uh, coronal mass ejections. Um, so we're now approaching the maximum where it's getting to that max of activity, and then it will gradually settle down over the next few years, and then the 11-year cycle will begin again. Um, these, this actually does have practical applications that when these coronal mass ejections go off, they can affect things on Earth. You're talking about enormous amounts of charged particles hitting our atmosphere. Our atmosphere and our magnetic field protect us, but a particularly large one like the Carrington event in 1859 could overwhelm our defenses and cause a major disaster. Um, in, I think it was 1989, there was a big one that caused uh, a blackout in Canada. If you had a really big one, you could be talking about a global blackout with uh, massive destruction because what it does is it, it sends currents through electrical wires and would blow up transformers and you could be talking about months long blackouts. So one of the things that people are now doing is looking into hardening the grid, putting capacitors in that could absorb such a surge, or even just having enough early warning that you could basically have a voluntary blackout, turn everything off, disconnect all the computers, basically prepare yourself for this massive solar storm. And then when it passes, to bring everything back, back on. Define pass because people like, you know, we're not talking a thunderstorm here. What, what would a solar storm of that magnitude actually look like practically as you sat in your house? It would be a couple of days, uh, a day or two of very intense uh, activity. You would see um, and when the last one, when the Carrington event hit, they were, they had, um, sparks dropping off power lines. They had, uh, surges that would set fire to paper and telegraph offices. They had, um, you would have Aurora very far South in 1859. They had Aurora as far South as Cuba. So you'd be talking about massive Aurora. So, uh, in practical terms, that would be like, that would be what it would be like. It's crazy. Amazing. Okay. They have found an exoplanet, but you can't look at it. Am I getting this right? Because it, when you see it, when you see like mirror exoplanet, that sounds like very sci-fi ish. Oh, we have this planet, but we can't see it because it's too reflective. But apparently this thing is real and y'all have found it out there. Yeah. What we do is stars are way brighter than planets. And so the way we detect planets around other stars. It's rare. On a rare occasions, the planet is bright enough and the star is faint enough and it's far enough away that we can actually see it in like an HST image or something like that. But most of the time we're looking for indirect evidence. We're looking for the small, tiny gravitational tug of the star on uh, the planet on its star, or we're looking for when the planet passes in front of the star, the star dims very slightly, like a very small fraction of a percent. And we've gotten to the point where our instruments are so precise, we can get very fine detail on seeing variations in the brightness of that planet as it passes around. So we've been able to see that there are planets that have clouds. And in this particular case, the mirror planet that they're talking about, it has, its cloud cover is so thick and so metallic that it um, reflects 80% of the light that hits it, which is a higher albedo than Venus. Albedo is the ratio of reflected light to incident light. So Venus reflects about 75% of the light that hits it because of the thick cloud cover. This new planet reflects about 80% of the light that hits it. And that's just looking at those tiny variations in the brightness of the star as the planet moves around it. 
Yeah, and for folks that don't know, Venus, you can actually see this with the naked eye if you know where you're looking occasionally. Just tell people that are just that just look up and have never really thought about it. This is kind of some astronomy 101 that I know you love to teach. You can find Venus pretty easy and see exactly what you're talking about, just the average person, can't they? Yep, uh, Venus is called uh, the morning star or the evening star because it's closer to the sun than we are. And so it, I, it never gets directly overhead uh, during the night. Uh, it's always uh, pretty close to the sun. So let me just look at where it is right now. Yeah, so right now it looks like it's the evening star. So in the, in the evening, if you look towards the sunset and you see a very bright object just above the sunset, that would be Venus. And it's planets are a little bit easy to distinguish from stars because stars are tiny and they twinkle because they're so far away. The atmosphere can interfere with that tiny little beam of light that's coming to us. Planets seem to have a little bit of size on the sky, and they tend to be solid. They don't twinkle as like stars do, and so that's a very good way to spot them. But there are lots of apps. I was just using the app on my phone to look up what the visibility is that will tell you where the planets are so that you can spot them. They're quite uh, – Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn are all visible to the naked eye. You don't need a telescope. I mean, they'll just look like lights in the sky, but you can see them. How much literature do we have to change in poetry if we change all the morning and evening star references to Venus and it's a planet? <laughs> uh, not too much. I think uh, the fact that it's a planet just makes those poems more interesting. Set your course to Venus? I don't know. Eh, <laughs> Dr. Michael Siegel is always really good with it. Uh, one more quick science question for you. We know all the space, it seems like the space, the stuff with the, the James Webb telescope, it seems like it's almost weekly now, what they're coming up. But more practical level, maybe on a science level, we're gonna be talking about this anti-vaccine stuff, I think. What's some of the science headlines you're looking for to hit the news cycle in the next little bit that we should be watching for as well. Is it a practical science, is it physical? A lot of talk about the water tables out west. I know a lot of people talking about that sort of stuff. Um, is it something in space? What's a couple of the headlines you're looking for over the next couple of weeks? I, I think uh, one thing to look out for is uh, with this hot summer, how that compares to previous years, whether we've set a new record or are close to a new record in, in uh, heat. Um, and how that, what that means for global warming. I think that's one thing to keep an eye on. Uh, another thing, JDOC is going to be coming out with a lot more results. Some of the big surveys are starting to produce results and they're gonna be getting the results of the first cycle of guest investigator programs, which are gonna be some really exciting results that we did not expect with the space telescope. So it's been doing just its bread and butter science so far. So this is gonna be pushing the envelope of what it's capable of. Uh, I think, LIGO, uh, the, the gravitational wave detector, just started up its fourth cycle. So uh, we're getting alerts uh, a couple times a week from them about new detections. So uh, I think they're just waiting to make some new spectacular discovery. So uh, a lot going on. 
I've got to ask you this question, Dr. Michael Siegel. I, I'll put you on the spot a little bit, but because the, because we're having another heat wave, and you know these things are cyclical, like a lot of other things, people are talking about the. I, I've always asked this one question though, because people are like, oh, this is the hottest temperature in five thousand years. How far back are thermometers reliable? And I know that's a little objective, but you know, did we have a thermometer like we have as we know it today, 5,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago that was accurate? How far back did people have a real, like you know, astronomy is thousands of years old because they had pretty good scientific basis for it. Thermometer wise, temperature reading wise, how far back are we talking where we're decently accurate, where we can make a fair scientific comparison to today, do you think? They, it was the thermometer specifically, you're probably talking about the 19th century. What we used to talk about thousands of years ago are uh, proxies, where we look for things in nature that are indicative of temperature, the like secondary indicators. Like one of the examples is there's a monastery in Europe that has recorded when the ice on the river broke up for 800 years. And you can actually look at the date and see that it's gotten earlier and earlier in the year that the ice on the river has broken up. So we, you know, that's when we're talking about thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, then you're talking about proxies, tree growth, that sort of thing. I find that stuff fascinating that, you know, again, a lot of what we do as technical science now started out as practical science like that. And I find that fascinating. Yep. And, you know, the science started out as a, even astronomy started out as something very practical to know what time of the year it was, when to plant your crops. You know, if you, in, in some ways it was trying to predict, you know, the will of gods and stuff like that. But even you put that aside, being able, you know, the first calendars were based on astronomy. The first ways of navigation in the world were based on astronomy. I have a video on my YouTube channel where I talk about Master and Commander of Moana and how, yeah, we, that's how people used to navigate by the stars because we didn't have a GPS. Yep, and Farmer's Almanac had it right long before Google ever figured out how to do anything, didn't they? Yep. <laughs> uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, tell folks about that YouTube channel. You're also writing at Ordinary Times when we can get you from your busy schedule. Uh, but let folks know about the YouTube channel, your other stuff, your writing, where they can follow you and where they can keep up and find you, my friend, till we get you back on Hertel again and keep your streak of being the most appeared guest we have. Yeah, the, so the YouTube channel, I uh, do little videos talking a little bit about science, mostly in the context of uh, movies, where I go through the movie and talk about what science they got right, what science they got wrong. The last one I did was this Chinese movie called The Wandering Earth, about how uh, they build these massive engines to push Earth out of our solar system because the sun is going to expand. And uh, so I talk about the science in there. I, I find it's a fun way to give sort of painless astronomy lessons of, you know, going into this popular culture and saying, hey, here's a movie you might like, and here's, you know, sort of the background discussion about it. And uh, we're up to 10,000 subscribers, so not doing too bad. Um, but all my stuff usually appears on Ordinary Times. I post the videos there. I post all my articles there. And uh, I, I owe you an article or three because uh, it's been a busy month. Yeah, I got the same problem, man. But good to have you back. Good to talk to you again, my friend. We've missed you. We'll talk again soon, sir. Appreciate the time. Uh, absolutely happy to be here. Thank you, sir. Oh.
Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, let's end on a good note. This is a very good note for those of us that have to use computers a lot. Uh, Cheryl V. writing in the Washington Post, CAPTCHA boxes are going away, and long may they still be dead. You know those little puzzle things you got to do on websites and emails and such to prove that you're human? They may be going away. Uh, again, Washington Post, you have probably seen CAPTCHAs, the puzzle that ask you to pick out all those bicycles in an image or decipher letters that are written in squiggly lines. These riddles are designed to let you buy concert tickets or sign up for Netflix. But keep someone out who is using computers to hammer a bank website with bogus credit card applications or employing rapid-fire software to buy a video game console before you even have a chance to. The problem is that CAPTCHAs don't do a great job of stopping bots. And for the rest of us, they waste our time and harvest our personal information. Side note here, plus it just drives me crazy because half the time I can't read those squiggly lines, even though I am, when I last checked, human, can't figure that one out. And the box things I start overthinking in, like, well, is that a motorcycle or is that a moped? And then you get into a mess. Anywho, Washington Post. Captures persist partly because they haven't been any better options to stop fraud or automated software. But finally, though, there is more technologies coming online to put CAPTCHAs on their deathbed. One basic premise behind the CAPTCHA killer, backed by the companies including Apple, is that instead of you solving a puzzle, your computer must solve the challenge to prove that you're human. You don't have to do anything. In other words, the burden goes on the computer instead of on you. CAPTCHAs are a tiny annoyance, but they're also one more stodgy technology that's making your life harder, not easier. Like online passwords and app stores, CAPTCHAs have a good reason to exist, but have clung to life longer after the drawbacks start outweighing the benefits. Let's talk about why the CAPTCHAs persist to annoy you and why there's hope they may slowly die. And there's a couple different points here that go through the squiggly line things, which nobody can read and whatever else. But here's the nut down at the bottom that is important for us to know, and it's still good news. We're in and on a little bit of a good note here. There's a separation between you and the ticketing website to keep your identity and information private. This is if you're buying live event tickets, which by the way, with inflation, go with God. I've turned down more things I wanted to do this summer because I just couldn't afford it. It was amazing. It's not because I couldn't get one ticket. It's because I want to take my kids and want to take friends. It gets expensive in a hurry. Anywho, these approaches use a technology standard called Privacy Pass that's backed by companies such as Apple, Google, Cloudflare, and its competitor Fastly. Carlos Alvarez, Chief Technology Office for Ticketmaster, said the ticket seller also uses machine-to-machine scoring systems to sort it out. Alvarez won't spill the details what computer signals the ticketing services use to distinguish bots from the rest of us. He said no technology will do that all and so on, but there will be ways around these non-capture technologies too. As long as locked gates have existed on the internet, people find ways to go away and through them. The challenge is to strike a balance between making it easy for you to buy tickets while putting up roadblocks to fraudsters and hoarders. By the way, you remember what happened with all the Taylor Swift nonsense where the people just blasted it and nobody could get a ticket to anything. Quote, captures are such a nightmare for people that something better had to come along, and now it has. If you're wondering whether there's anything that you can do to see fewer maddening CAPTCHAs, sorry, not really, but the website naps you are using now will start changing once the technology catch up and see a CAPTCHA replacement and what form it takes. One of those little things we do every day that might be going away, and I can't wait for it. And then we can all start complaining about whatever the new thing is, right? Because that's what we do. Well, we'll try our best not to. That'll do it for her. Tell all these things we talked about today will be linked in the show notes. You can find those on the Substack, hertel.substack.com. Every episode we're doing, we're working on getting the uh, archive of Hertel shows up. That's over 600 different media files. It's just going to take us a little bit to get it on there. But also, all my writing, media appearances, 
I'm even re-upping some of the Yonder and Home food stories and those things. Please make sure all the content on there is free. Hertel.substack.com. There'll be a link also in the show notes for all the podcasting platforms except for iTunes because they don't let us do links for some odd reason. Make sure you read these stories yourself. Form your own opinions. Then you can leave us comments. Let us know what to do. Hertelshow at gmail.com. Hertelshow, whatever platform you're listening, make sure you subscribe. And we thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. We never want to waste it. We'll keep trying to do good work for you. We still have more coming. We have good interviews already in the bin, waiting to get worked up. We're going to keep talking about current events and the things that really matter so we can continue to discern the times we live in. So until we see you again, wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. And we will talk to you again real soon for more Hurt Tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.